You're listening to Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, November 12, 2023. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Just a quick note before we get started, Democracy on the Move is in the process of redefining itself. We've moved our website to Substack. You can find us at democracyonthemove.substack.com or just go to democracyonthemove.org and it will redirect you to the Substack site. It's not quite put together yet, so I apologize if it looks like it's still under construction. We're slowly changing our approach to the podcast as well as changing our outer appearance on the website. And of course, we haven't been broadcasting on a weekly basis, though we will try to keep up that aggressive pace in the future. The changes are rolling out kind of slowly, but they are rolling out. As the new election season heats up, I anticipate having a lot of interesting conversations with candidates and activists, all work to- all working toward making a more perfect union. We're also on Twitter slash X at All on the Move. And speaking of Twitter slash X, I personally call out the folks who advocate for shredding our constitution and driving us toward authoritarianism. I see that as my duty, my patriotic duty, to defend the constitution. But at the same time, I recognize the motivation behind the extremist movements. After all, our government has fallen far short of its duty to protect the American people. It has lied us into a war in Iraq. It has failed to protect us from the financial crisis of 2008. And it rarely holds the high-level officials accountable for their criminal activities. As a result, mistrust runs rampant in our society. Making things worse, of course, everyone knows that the mainstream media is in on the manipulation. Indeed, only six corporations control 90% of the media market. This list includes AT&T, CBS, Comcast, Disney, News Corp, and Viacom. Yes, there are well-intentioned reporters among them who really do want the truth to come out, but many of them find their frustration their stories are being suppressed. Most of them figured out how to play the game. They tolerate the suppression or they lose their jobs. Well, you never hear from the ones that lose their jobs, so most of the high-profile reporters out there are the ones that know how to play the game. This is the way of America these days. Now, call me naive, if you will, but I still believe that America is worth saving. The Constitution, as flawed as it is, is not the problem. The problem is the plethora of politicians, big corporations, and the rich people that keep the illusion of democracy alive. They use the proverbial... American dream to mislead us into thinking that hard work and smart choices will bring us to the promised land. But most Americans are smarter than that. They know that we've been largely misled to believe in an American dream that has been manipulated to serve only the rich and thereby increase the wealth gap. The American people see the intentional efforts by big businesses and the politicians that they own as they undermine labor unions, fight against the rising or the raising of the minimum wage, and spread rumors of disaster should we decide to implement a true health care system that takes care of all people. It's unfortunate that some of these politicians have figured out how to tap into this vein of mistrust and bleed it dry while at the same time convincing us that they're on our side. I believe this is a central tenet of the MAGA movement, you know, make America great again. 
the MAGA movement tricked rightfully suspicious Americans into thinking that MAGA is on their side, when all along MAGA, MAGA advocates for policies that directly undermine the interests of Americans. They hijack that feeling of suspicion into questioning the integrity of our elections. They spread conspiracy theories about threats to our way of life around every corner. And they get us Americans to fight among ourselves while they sneak in behind us and pick our pockets. Ultimately, this is the precise scenario where fascism takes root and grows. Despite what MAGA Nation says, fascism is not a cure to our ills. Fascism only solves the problems that MAGA has artificially manufactured, like build the wall, or drain the swamp, or save our babies. Look, children aren't born to hate, but they can be taught to hate. In fact, hatred is an easy lesson to learn once you convince someone that all of his ills and all of his problems can be blamed on other people that aren't like him. So today we're going to talk about fascism and how the American dream has been hijacked into a rising belief in this extremist political perspective. Joining us is Jojo Stewart. Now you may recall that Jojo was last on this podcast exactly a year ago. It was November 6th of 2022. Since we last talked with Jojo, she has continued her passion for activism, ultimately becoming the social media manager for Randy McCallion, who's running for the U.S. congressional seat, representing the 8th District in Missouri. Jojo is a mom in a rural area in the Ozarks in southern Missouri. She's a rebel in the sense that she's a progressive swimming in a sea of conservatives. She became politically active after spending time at a pro-choice protest that she organized. She writes letters to the editor and found a bit of notoriety in doing so. And she maintains a blog that, distinctly, that is distinctly small town in its origins, but deals with issues that have nationwide impact. So Jojo, I can hear you in the background there. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on. So um, you and I have crossed paths several times over the last year or two, and um, I really enjoy my conversations with you. But we're going to focus today. Yeah, we're going to focus today on fascism, um, a compelling topic. I've talked about it before in this podcast. So let's start at the beginning. In in your opinion, what is fascism? Uh, It kind of depends on which. Kind of definition you want to go for mm-hmm. really because there's like multiple definitions of it but i think anytime a government oversteps its bounds and starts legislating people out of existence starts telling you what you can and cannot do is a form of fascism mm-hmm. you know it gets into actual tyranny yeah well, is it, uh, but there's also this, this sense of, it's authoritarian is what you're describing, but there's also this ultra-nationalist ideology that emphasizes the union of the nation and the people and the authority of the leader. It's a, it's a, um, it's a cult of personality who the leader becomes, right? Yeah, and I would agree with that because it, the movement itself centers around that leader. It doesn't do anything else. It's whatever that leader wants, the leader gets. And I'd almost argue it's kind of like a monarch, like in the Dark Ages, or even seen it with the ancient Romans, you know, with their emperors. Mm -hmm. And it all centered around one personality and their whims, right, wrong, or indifferent. That's where it stayed. That's interesting, too, because, you know, the, the Republican Party really doesn't come up with a platform, do they? 
their platform is whatever Trump wants. Yeah, pretty much. Um, when you start, cause I build platforms for different campaigns and help with, you know, scatter out getting talking points and whatnot. That's where you really see it. When you start to dig into the Republican platform, there is none. There are no actual plans. Yeah. They, they make it sound like they've got a plan, but when you strip it back with all their fancy, from all their fancy wording, you're left with nothing. Yeah. Just, just some, you know, random, Hey, we should do that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's about it. Yeah. We should do whatever, whatever the cult leader says in this case would, would yeah. be Donald Trump. Yeah. It's interesting that the word fascism comes from the word fascio, which I believe that's the pronunciation, correct, the correct pronunciation, which is uh, an Italian word that uh, Benito Mussolini sort of hijacked and created this political, this, this extremist political movement. But the fascio is actually a bundle of sticks. And the idea there is that the bundle, when bundled tightly together, becomes stronger than any one individual stick. And oftentimes there's like an axe head that protrudes out of this bundle of sticks. And what I think is kind of interesting, if you look at the American dime, you know, the, the coin, the dime, look at the back of the dime. There's a fascio on the back of that dime there. Um, if you look at the floor of the House of Representatives, the U.S. House of Representatives, they have two fascios right there at the very beginning, right at the very front, on the left and on the right of the speaker. So this this idea of fascism, it, it's, it's, it's rooted in a word that is, that is um, it's, it's a benign term, really, but has been, but fascism itself, as a political movement based upon that benign term, has become extremist in its thinking. Um, so, let's move forward, though. I mean, we, there are a lot of conditions that lead to fascism, to the rise of fascism. But what are you seeing in the United States these days that gives you concern about the rise of fascism? Um, well, aside from legislation, especially in state houses, because that's something else I look at with my job, um, the economy, the way they, the way it's almost manipulated Mm -hmm. to seem worse than what it actually is, or even better than it actually is just to cause chaos. Um, you see a lot of what I see anyway, a lot of calls for external violence and Hmm. by that i mean you know random acts of terror you know um there was one guy after ohio passed the abortion legislate i think it was issue one over abortion keeping it legal you saw a whole bunch of right-wingers take on you know and post on social media of crusaders and Random Bible verses talking and calling for acts of violence. It's like, wow, you know, um, some of the conditions is, dare I say that psyopses are used off and on, Mm -hmm. um, to just get people scared of their own neighbor. I mean, I think a really good one that we've heard forever, I know I have, and you probably have too, you know, those people are coming over to take your stuff. Yeah. Whoever they don't like at the time. They're they're going to, you know, the GOP doesn't like at the time. They're coming over to take your stuff. And that drives wedges between their 
between people and their neighbors. There is just so much we see conditionally. I mean, Missouri looks like we the Weimar, Weimar Republic of 1929, mm-hmm. be it legislation, how some of our politicians act, the crazy amount of corruption that's in the state house. Yeah. Um, you know, it it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, re- corruption is one of those things that really drives um, instability. It it, <clears throat> it feeds into this idea that we cannot trust government. And uh, you talked about economic instability as well. Um, you know, high inflation actually is one of the trigger points. Not the only one, but high inflation is one of the trigger points. You know, we're, we're talking about inflation these days. I don't know what it's at right now, especially somewhere around 6 or 7%, I believe. Supposedly, it's on its way down. Uh, that's nothing compared to what was going on in Weimar Republic back in the 1920s, right? It was runaway inflation. But, uh, you know, there's also this instability as a result of the wealth gap that's that's just huge these days. And also, I th- you talked about um, corruption, and I'm going to return to that because that that contributes to political instability and... One of the things that really bothered me, and, you know, I voted for Obama both times, but it was only because there was no better alternative, especially in 2008. I mean, I voted for him because I thought he was the best because, you know, he talked about hope and change and things like that. But by the time 2012 rolled around, I realized he wasn't really following through with everything. Uh, And one of the things that one of the big thorns that really stick in my side about this whole thing is the economic collapse of 2008 and... Obama's refusal to prosecute the ones who were guilty. And we know what happened. Now, looking back on 2008 financial crisis, we know what happened back then. And his attorney general, Eric Holder, refused to pursue the banks, saying they were too big to fall or too big to fail. And, you know, Eric Holder, before he became attorney general, was working for Covington and Burling, which is a law firm that represented a lot of these big banks. And after he resigned, I believe resigned in 2015, um, guess where he went? Back to Covington and Burling, which was a revolving, for, for him, it was a revolving door, but he works that, goes back to work for these law firms that are representing a lot of these big banks that were behind the economic crisis. You know, so people see that. You know, it, it, like I say, I, I see the roots of MAGA. I see, I see why they're upset about this sort of thing, because this is just absolutely inexcusable. It's it's corruption, which causes political instability. Um, you also talked about violence, which I think is it runs into social unrest, uh, you know, create social divisions, uh, ethnic or religious conflicts. Uh, you talk about, um, you know, um, people who are different than us or something. You know, the, the, I see oftentimes people coming over the border, the so-called brown people, bringing disease and pestilence with them. Uh, that's another rallying call for fascism. Mm-hmm. And yep. and at the end of the day, what happens is there's this loss in faith of democracy because there's this decline in public trust and democratic institutions. And that makes people gravitate toward a strong authoritarian leader, the one that gets up and says, quote, I alone can fix it. And that is where fascism comes from. I know it's Benito Mussolini all over again, or Adolf Hitler all over again. Yep. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally uh, on the same page with you on that one. Um, 
So those are kind of the political conditions that exist today for fascism. Uh, but there's also this this other part that we didn't talk about too much. We hit upon it a little bit with you know people coming over the border, is this rise in white nationalism and oh, the yeah racism, extreme racism is is one of the elements of fascism. So what are you seeing down there in southern southern part of Missouri in the southern part of the well, Ozarks? In my part, I mean we've got a few that are I'm don't know how I would describe them. Pretty racist, I guess. Mm -hmm. But overall, they usually get shunned by the community as a whole. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, black people have been a part of our society down here since the end of slavery. Yeah, And you can go back and look at old newspaper archives, which I have, old letters from the editor, which some of them cracked me up because the way they talked about these folks wasn't like in a demeaning way, but as part of the community, mm -hmm. you know, yes, segregation was a thing down here, but they didn't see that they like missed them if they moved or, you know, because mm -hmm. they were so ingrained with just the community as a whole. So you don't really see a lot like you would see up around Kansas city. Mm -hmm. Like I said, we get a few, but they get shunned. Um, as mm -hmm. in that department, as you do, you know, in a like suburb area, okay. you know, yeah. it, but we're, the Ozarks has always been different. Mm -hmm. No man's land, if you will, since the civil war. Yeah. And we had slavery here, but it wasn't like a, everybody was too poor really to have slaves. Yeah in certain parts, you know, so down in our area, now in your remote areas, that's where you find a lot of people kind of weird. Mm -hmm. Um, but overall it's never been that big of a deal. They just I see. were, they're part of the community and always have been. Um, there was a book and it's going in a museum. They're actually doing a refabbing a house. It's an old, schoolhouse for black children mm -hmm. that was in West Plains and it's a community project widely supported and they're getting more of the black history from folks that have lived down here over the years up through to the end of segregation mm -hmm. when they started going over to the actual West Plains school and it's going to be a really cool museum once I get it done okay but there was a there is a uh, pamphlet and what the businesses did, and this was unheard of because this was in the 50s. Um, they, Of course, they had the white businesses up front. But what they did was put a few black businesses that were in West Plains at the back of it, which was unheard of because you didn't see that in little sundown towns or whatever mm -hmm. anywhere. But they had that here, hmm. trying to include them. Not hmm. the best way, but they were trying to, you know, mm -hmm. considering the time frame. So it was, it's always been really interesting. In yeah, it's, um, you know, I think different, I think you're right about, you know, different regions have different attitudes about it. Um, some time ago, I talked to, to uh, um, Jess, um, Jess Piper, and she's from up around the Maryville area, which is northwestern Missouri. And uh, so after, I, yeah, I, I interviewed her on a, on a podcast some time ago, and 
And so I thought, I'm going to look up, you know, Maryville and see what's going on up there. You know, so I looked them up on Wikipedia and I found out that it was as recent as the 1930s. Um, they had lynched a black person who was accused of of assaulting a white woman. I mean, that's a that's a common story. Right. And unfortunately, a common story. So you have these these pockets where racism we were just talking about you know white on black racism um it's it's still quite prevalent and it's still pretty deeply rooted in some areas i'm glad to see or glad to hear that you're you're saying that in in your area there it's not such a big issue but we also have to include other people in there right we have to we have to put uh muslims uh jewish people you know especially with the war going on in in israel at this point so there's that uh, there's that uh, anti-Semitism versus uh, you know, Palestinian genocide thing going on. So uh, you also have to include in that discussion yeah. um, Hispanics, uh, you know, people you know migrating up through Mexico. Um, you know, there's 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 still a lot of that racism. Did you see any sort of like race that type of racism in your area? Uh, well, we don't really have like a huge. Jewish population, if any, or even uh, Muslim Mm -hmm. or Arabic. I mean, there's a few, but not many. So I don't see that on a regular Mm -hmm. Hispanic. Yes, we do have a bigger Hispanic population. And for the most part, you don't see it. I mean, occasional Mm -hmm. somebody walking by and making snide remarks, but overall, not so much. Okay. You know, so it's the reason why I got I kind of got sidetracked on on racism here because I know that that is a big part of fascism, um, but you know, fascism it's not the only part of fascism. It just tends tends to be one attribute of it. And so I was interested to find out you know what it looks like in your area there. And it sounds to me like it that that is not the that is not a significant portion of the fascist movement. But um, as long as it's getting getting back to fascism. One of the things I'm afraid of these days is is fascism being overused because, you know, I hear people on the extreme right calling people on the extreme left fascists and vice versa. And I think anytime you get into an extremist situation, there's going to be some sort of authoritarianism. It may not be fascism, but it could be some sort of authoritarianism. So these accusations are not entirely without merit. But um, but I'm, what I'm afraid of is that fascism becomes overused these days. What, what, what do you feel about that? I think we definitely see a horseshoe theory being applied when it comes to the far right and extreme left. Mm-hmm. Um, horseshoe. Uh, what is that? Okay. You, the you, horseshoe? I, I'm not, I'm not, you, and I'm not a rural person. So I only know <laughs> horseshoes. Like when I play horseshoes once in a while, and I still don't know what I'm doing there either, but, uh, but go ahead. Tell me what that Just means. Just hit your pole. You're okay. If you hit the pole, you get a point. <laughs> Um, and the horseshoe theory is a political theory where the both spectrums and the end come around Mm. and it makes almost a full circle. I see. And you're definitely seeing that with like your far left and your far right. They mimic each other's rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Um, so there is that horseshoe theory being applied, Mm -hmm. especially now with Palestine and the Israel situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Uh, do I think it's overused? Sometimes. But people have been trying to de- desensitize us, well, the mass population, when mm-hmm. I say us, since, you know, at least McCarthyism mm-hmm. and the Cold War by spouting off calling people Nazis when they're actually not. Right. You know, because we're so exposed to it. Yeah. And I think that it does kind of get overused. And it all boils down for me who's using it yeah. and how they're using it. Yeah. You know, when you start seeing like that piece of legislation, like putting Bibles in the school, although it's elective, although they put it under social studies and history, you know, that gets into doc- in Christian indoctrination. Yeah. yeah. Just a little bit. It, you know, so that's what I look for when yeah. I'm describing something that's fascist or like the bans on trans kids not being able to play sports or trying to legislate them out of existence. That to me is fascism. Yeah. Trying to control how the population is. What do you think about that, though? You mentioned, you know, Christian indoctrination which it's been taking place since, you know, the beginning of religion. I mean, I, I myself was went to a Catholic school till I was like in third grade, whatever. And, you know, you could consider that somewhat indoctrination, although, you know, looking back on it, I think I learned everything I needed to learn. In fact, when I went to public school after that, um, they weren't quite at the same level I was, which is interesting. Um, but that's just, you know, that's an anecdotal uh, example there. But what do you think about it when people say this is a Christian nation? You know, and I have to give you a backstory on this. Uh, it was back in the late 1990s. I was working as a sales engineer, traveling around with some other sales engineers. One of the, one of the other guys that I was traveling with, fairly religious person. And I remember we were at uh, this place called the Cheesecake Factory, which is a pretty popular place out there in Southern California where I was. And um, just having lunch, just chatting away. And... He turns to me during the middle of the conversation. He says, you know, the U.S. Constitution is a Christian document. And I just busted up laughing. I thought he was telling me a joke or something, you know. And then I realized he had a very serious expression on his face. That's the first time I've ever heard of it. And then since then, I've been hearing about it a lot. They're saying, you know, uh, the Declaration of Independence is uh, a Christian document. The U.S. Constitution is a Christian document. And to me, it looks like the thing that the mode of operation of Christians has been since the beginning of time, they've stolen things from pagans. Um, they stole Christmas from pagans, right? And they said, okay, Jesus was born on Christmas. And eh, no, he really wasn't. Okay. But that's when I celebrate it because, you know, that was really a festival of lights, which was the, the celebration of the winter solstice, right? The sun's coming back, right? Yeah. It's going to be planting seasons coming up and so on. New year has started. And, um, you know, other holidays that sort of get, you know, get uh, uh, hijacked. And I see the same thing now happening with the U.S. Constitution. It is, a, it is not a Christian document, and nobody can ever convince me that it is. Um, and if you look at uh, some of the documents, uh, oh, gosh, I forgot who wrote it. It might have been Thomas Jefferson writing one of the documents um, that um, 
was written for the Libyan government at that point because we had just concluded our first war with them. And he wanted to reassure the Muslim people there that we are not a Christian nation. And he, he it might have been Madison that wrote that. But anyways, um, you know, and people point to that to that passage and say, you know, this is proof that our forefathers never thought of us as being a Christian nation. Um, but here we are, right? People try to hijack the Constitution and say it's a Christian document. What What, what is your perspective on that? <laughs> My perspective? Um, there has been evangelical movements. Uh, I think they're called Seven Mountains something or another. That has been trying to push this idea to change us from a democracy into a, a so-called Christian nation. Mm-hmm. And they see the founding fathers not like we do, you know, like Washington, Madison, you know, etc. But they go back into Puritan, the early Puritan settlers, and that's a really weird thing. But no, we have never been a Christian nation. The Treaty of Teropoli. Tripoli, yeah. At, yep. Yeah, that was, was the one Madison. I was thinking about, yeah. That was Madison? Yeah. Okay, okay. He, yeah, he won't leave states. We are not. Jefferson says no. I mean, Jefferson wrote that all over the place, mm-hmm. that we are not. Um, that That's one thing they all agreed on, because you think about it, they grew up watching a lot of religious persecution. Yeah. You think about when, at their time, you know, they had just came off of watching witch trials, which mm-hmm. happened, you know, we're going to say... 1630s yeah you know up until the 1750s mm-hmm. um so they seen all this and said no and i mean if anybody really reads on them they'd figure out they're deist yeah. they believed in a supreme power but not any specific mm-hmm. religion yeah so my take is is just that people there are groups trying to push this and it's almost um, a revisionist history yeah. that they're trying to push. Yeah. And, and I also invite people to read Jefferson's Bible. They'll make you ask a lot of questions. Okay. I did not know that. Uh, Jefferson's Bible. I do know that um, Josh Hawley wrote an article uh, back in 2010, before he launched his political career, about, uh, I forgot what the name of the article was, something about kingdom politics. And he wrote that we should create a Christian uh, kingdom on earth. And what is he now? Is he a U.S. senator? That is yeah. where he's going, you know. And honestly, this scares the crap out of me when I see stuff like this, because I think, you know, what room does that give for people who are secular, people who are who are not Christian, who are Muslim or Jewish or people like me or just basically, you know, spiritualists, free spirits? Um, there's no place for us in this society that they're trying to put together. And this actually can, I, I'm not sure if that has much to do with fascism, but it is an extremist sort of thinking that uh, parallels fascism. Yeah. Um, well, you think about it, though. Theocracies are really fascist movements. Mm-hmm. They're just hidden under religious doctrine. Yeah. And 
I mean, MAGA is nothing more than the rebirth of the Confederacy 2.0, which in its own right was more of a theocracy and a fascist movement, especially if you considered that the slaves were forced to give up their native religion mm-hmm. and forced to learn Christianity. Yeah. You know, I there I did find an article that kind of that supported that theory. Wow. I'll send you the link eventually. But I'd like to uh, see that, yeah. I'll find it again. <laughs> I think it's bookmarked. Um, but you know, we're, that's what we're seeing is just a rebirth of something that happened yeah. because people never got over the fact they lost in 1864. Yeah. Well, that was, um, you know, I think a lot of that is due to the end of the reconstruction era, which was, you know, a big political thing that, uh, you know, started with Andrew Johnson and it just, it, it basically said, to the Southern people, well, you didn't really lose, you know, welcome back into the fold. And that was unfortunate because, you know, I I, I think anytime a nation gets conquered by another nation in in a war like that, and they try to rehabilitate that nation, there should be a rehabilitation of, of the thought process as well. And we saw this very successfully in Germany after World War II. We saw it very successfully in Japan, also after World War II, where um, you know, you in Japan in particular, there was this belief that the uh, emperor was 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 you know part god, and that was that was just um, completely discarded, because you can't move your thought process into the into the future with those old ways of thinking, and yeah. and that um, it became a very um, very crucial thing. And the emperor himself was forced to admit that. So, um, yeah, you know, in, in the case of, uh, of the South after the civil war, that process never really completed. I think they started on it with reconstruction, but it never got completed. And what's really sad to see is that the, um, the black history in the South during the period leading up to like the 1890s, you saw a lot of, uh, black individuals, ex-slaves, becoming senators and representatives at both the state level and at the federal level. And um, that was almost completely gone um, by the early 1900s, almost completely gone. It was just wiped out through the Jim Crow laws and through voter intimidation, and the government did nothing to stop it. And this is, you know, again, where the, where the government sort of fails the people, doesn't have that insight to realize which direction the society is going and, and has an opportunity to stop it, but fails. And I would agree with that. I mean, I won't repeat what I think the Reconstruction era was. <laughs> it was not very nice. My, my editor for when I write my blog told me I was being too profane when I was describing it. So... <laughs> But I don't disagree. And, you know, there's a lot of foresight, lack of foresight into foreseeing how people are going to be and understanding their natures. Yeah. Especially when it comes to politics, because, you know, yeah. politics tends to drag out the worst in people. Yeah. The absolute worst. Yeah. 
And, you know, and but even then, politics had the same problem we have now, which is all that big money that rolls in. Well, I, I, that's a good thing you bring that up because that actually is, uh, that speaks directly to corruption. And the United States Constitution was never written with the intent of allowing corporations to gain the power that they have. They never wrote corporations into the Constitution. Corporations were not people. Um, nowadays, you're seeing a situation where corporations have actually like, they're like super people, you know, they're oh. able they're able to do, they're, they have First Amendment rights according to the uh, Citizens United decision back in 2011. And that was just uh, that was just the last straw in a very long sequence of things that started back in the mid 1800s that um, allowed corporations to gain more and more power. And see, that I think is also another driving force behind the nationalism and the fascism that we're seeing is all these corporations and mm -hmm. billionaires being able to go in and pour their money into shell companies and whatnot and influence our policies that way yeah you know um that's one thing i learned really quickly digging dumpster diving through fecs is just how much money a corporation can throw at somebody yeah. it's nauseating well it's it's pretty much unlimited now through super PACs, right they can do anything they want as far as i yeah. as far as i know yeah um there was a thing i have it on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen it yet or not. Um, Trump is exempt and doesn't have to abide by the FEC rules and laws for his campaign. Really? Why is that? Nobody really need, seems to know, but it's an important thing. And, you know, that's going to influence our elections big time. Yeah. Wow. You know, but yeah, it was... Um, I've got it on Twitter. Okay. Uh, with and the the thing I posted has the link for the FEC document where it can be pulled up. Well, show me that link because I'm we're making the transition to go on to Substack at this point, which means I'm able to put in some show notes and uh, okay. blogs and things like that. I'd like to I'd like to put a link to that in the blog because um, that's something I think is very important for people to read. You know, and, and you know, one of the problems is people are very busy. They don't have time to read a lot of stuff. So that's why I think podcasts play an important part of perhaps interpreting it. And then if people have enough interest in a document like what you're posting, um, they'll go back and read it and educate themselves a little bit more. Um, yeah. So you know, we talked about how you know how fascism works, and um, you talked also about the rise of violence and hate speech, and the, uh, and we also talked about, well, I think it was maybe before we actually started recording, we talked about one of the things that Trump was proposing to do uh, if he were to win the election is immediately on a, upon his inauguration was, was to enact the Insurrection Act, which essentially allow him to suppress dissent directly. Uh, he could, he could yeah. see that uh, the Women's March, which took place in 2017, right after he took office, uh, that must have humiliated him because that was taking place during his inauguration. Um, now, you know, he said on the very day that he gets sworn in, he's going to 
enact the Insurrection Act, which essentially, I think if I'm reading it correct, and maybe I'm being alarmist about this, but essentially allows uh, military to come in and suppress dissent. Is that how you're reading yep. it? That's how I'm reading it. But that was, he didn't come up with that by himself. That's all Heritage Foundation's nonsense and their handbook, Project 2025. Um, there's so much stuff in those 923 plus pages of just terrifying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, oh, works that they would like to do. For example, um, abortion will be banned na as a national policy. Mm -hmm. They have family works programs in there like to, uh, how, how did they word that? It was, it's similar to like the Nazis had for family uh, programs, you know, mm -hmm. that established the, the father, the mom, you know, the nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in there. I've got screenshots. I can show you, send you those. Um, they want to re, you know, start up those kinds of programs. Mm -hmm. um, they want to starve out farmers because when the USDA, when a farmer loses their crop, will give them loans and grants and stuff to kind of help pay, subsidize that for just a little bit. And this is geared for smaller farmers, not big ag, but it's supposed to anyway, but it usually goes to big ag. We know this, mm -hmm. but they want to cut off those loan payments. So that's going to hurt farmer Brown, you know, that, you know, maybe only has not even 200 acres of corn or whatnot. His crop fails and that's his only income. No. So if they don't reimburse them for their crops, that farmer's going to lose everything, you know, or cattle farmer or whatever, you know, they're, they're going after the farmers, which I find odd because, well, they're the backbone of society, really. Yes and Why? no. I, I would, I would, I would, 50 years ago, I would have agreed with you because, you know, we were started off being an agrarian nation and we're now more of a city type nation and farmers, you know, one of the reasons is the advancement in technology has allowed one person to farm a lot more acres. So um, the farms, you know, back in the old days, they would have lots of kids because the kids would help out with the field. And, you know, and, and there was plenty of land to go around. And then when the kids grew up, they got their own land. So, well, that can't happen anymore because of technology. And so there's been this natural progression driven by technology to move people off the farm. But I think what makes the situation a lot more dire is the um, is the industrialization of farming, particularly yeah. with CAFOs, the, the concentrated animal feeding operations, where um, the uh, number of acres used per cow goes way down. They just basically keep these cows and and, and hogs uh, confined to very very small quarters, and um, basically just raise them within these within these barns that they never get out of the barn they, you know the free range you know animal is, is yeah. kind of becoming um, a thing of the past and so the fault the small farmers are being pushed off their property um, and these CAFOs are the ones that are driving them away 
And yeah. um, so I think that that may be behind this this sort of insidious plan that you cited, Project 2025 from American Heritage. By the way, go online and look for that, folks, because that is a 900-plus uh, page document that lays out exactly what they want to do if and when they get power in, in the year 2025. I haven't had the guts to read it yet because um, I, I, to me, I, I'm not a big fan of horror novels. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> But I think as, an, as, as a duty to America, perhaps I should read it, because I know you read the whole thing already. Uh, yes, and I've also read The Exorcist. The Exorcist is less scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, The Exorcist is like, oh, that's fake, you know, but this is real. This is real stuff. Project 2025 is real. Yeah, it, it's a it's an intense read. Yeah. Nauseating. Yeah. I've got to go buy more mead because I ran out. Read <laughs> 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 I'll go out and stock up myself before I even start to tackle this I, thing. My um, suggestion, find anything that's at least 19% proof. Before. <laughs> <laughs> that's my uh, suggestion. Okay, well, I may stumble through it in a, in a drunken stupor and not remember it the next day because I would have killed off all the brain cells that were reading it. Oh, no, oh no you take screenshots as you go. <laughs> okay, <laughs> That helps. How about if I just have my AI, like ChatGPT, read it for me and give me the Reader's Digest version or something? Um, yeah, that's a little scary because it might be like all happy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, there I, has I, been studies saying that uh, AI chatbots tend to favor, you know, want to be dictators. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I'll yeah, have I've, to see if I can find that news story for you. I read that. It was like couple months ago i was like surprise surprise <laughs> yeah well you know I've, ai is one of my uh one of my interests I've, for a very long time i've actually uh, used ai in one form or another without even realizing it went back when i was doing a lot of programming and um but it's 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 in high gear now and <laughs> i use uh, chat gpt and i've been using bard from google re recently which i find to be more updated than chat gpt um i haven't noticed any any bias yet but what i have noticed is it just makes up stuff if it doesn't know the answer <laughs> it's not smart enough to say hey i don't know the answer it'll just make it up and like oh my god so you have to really be careful when you read something to go back and validate it so um, at least they have a feedback mechanism when they do make something up i tell them about it i say hey you know this this thing's dreaming it's hallucinating so you need to fix it <laughs> But Sounds like, like most of our lawmakers, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say a 10-year-old kid, but that yeah, the same thing, I guess. You, I know? Mean, <laughs> you can't convince me Eric Smith's not a chatbot at this point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, he posts up. Senator Eric Schmidt, one of my favorite guys, not. Um, I, I give him trouble over it. You probably saw this this tweet of his he put out over a year ago on so-called uh, Columbus Day, which we now call um, Indigenous People Day or something like that. Something um, like that. Yeah, and so you know, I'm, I'm all in favor of that. But, uh, you know, there's guys like Eric Schmidt that say, no, it's Columbus Day. And so he came up with this tweet that said, uh, the scientists of the day thought that the Earth was flat, but Columbus proved them wrong. I'm like, are you an idiot or what? Because, <laughs> you know, even back in high school, I knew that, you know, the ancient Greeks had figured out not only uh, that the Earth was spherical, round, but they they very accurately calculated its size, very accurately. 
uh, just based on some accurate measurements they were making at the time. This is like, you know, 1,300 years before Columbus even set sail. Well, All the sailors you know, back then knew the earth was round. I mean, come on, you know. Even, I think it was Eric the Red that, or Eric Leaf, oh. Ericson. Leafson? Or er- Even in yeah. Columbia, or Canada, 500 years before, Columbus yeah. even found Cuba. I knew he was, in, so, he was in Greenland. He made it all the way to, to uh, Newfoundland, too. I didn't. I, I yeah, think, yeah he made it yeah. to Canada. Wow. Yeah. And I, yeah, that gets into the myth of New Finland uh, mm-hmm. or Vinland that nobody can seem to find. It kind of makes you wonder the way it's described in the myth if it wasn't Canada that they stumbled across. Because you can go up to Minnesota and there's like little Viking, ancient Viking settlements there. Wow. In Minnesota? Or I thought it was up in like yeah. Newfoundland. Wow. Like yeah. North, yeah. Yeah, those guys weren't idiots. I mean, you know, I, I, my wife and I are very much into Vikings these days. And my brother has actually traced our family tree back to Rollo. Um, that? Which, yeah, one, one branch of my family is fairly, fairly well documented. But I think there's like, you know, probably 50 million people that can be traced back to that guy at this point. <laughs> But yeah, uh, he got around. That's yeah. for sure. Well, even if he did <laughs> get like around, Genghis I mean, it's just, just yeah. <laughs> well, even if he didn't get around, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, the human, the humans blend, you know, and you're talking about, yeah. you know, hundred generations or something, you're going to get spread out pretty far, even if you only have one yeah. kid in one generation. Um, yeah. kind of getting off track here, but, um, what, what do you think can be done about the rise of fascism? And I have to, temper this a little bit i realize i have to leave here in about 15 minutes i gotta go um, take my wife up to see the eye doctor but uh what do you think is the uh is the roots of uh i mean what do you think is what can be done about fascism these days when you see it call it out mm-hmm. don't be afraid to sash your lawmakers if they're doing something you don't like mm-hmm. especially in malik they're not used to and let's be honest, some of the members of Malig are extreme. Yeah. Like Setzer or Schroeder or... Uh, sure, Nick Schroer. You're talking about yeah. Molig, you're talking about the Missouri legislature, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh, there's so many of them. I just yeah. can't keep up with them. You know, do not be afraid to, you know, if they're pushing something that, you know looks really unconstitutional kind of like the constitutional sheriffs that fail but no doubt they'll go after again yeah this next session you know don't be afraid to say hey no that's not right yeah you know give them your opinion how so though i mean you do you just you call them up directly on the phone or do you write them letters you, or what you can uh you can email them you can call them out on social media um, you can write letters to, and it sounds cliche, but you write letters in your local paper, mm-hmm. get them published, make folks aware of what they are doing mm-hmm. and, you know, just really enunciate and pronounce why this is kind of on the borderline of fascism, like Ashcroft's library rule where he wants to ban all the books, Yeah, you yeah. know, that that kind of stuff is what you need to look for and to call out and say, Hey, that's unconstitutional. That that's against the first amendment. 
But those guys know, think they know the law better than we do. I mean, Ashcroft himself as an engineer, I actually had a conversation with him on the podcast uh, some time ago. Um, and I have to say, I, I, I admire him for one reason. I have tried and tried and tried to get Republicans on this podcast. Um, they've all refused, except Jay Ashcroft, who's our uh, Secretary of State in Missouri here, uh, stepped up and took the challenge. And we had a good conversation. And, um, of course, I didn't agree with him about half the stuff, but, you know, it was a respectful conversation regardless. So, I, I yeah, I, I, I get that. I mean, it, you get these guys one-on-one, you know, you can actually yep. get their attention and let them know that, you know, you're you're not really with uh, your constituency if you're pushing these views. Yeah. So. And, you know, most some of them will talk back to you, but most of them will either try to mock you or attack you with memes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the uh, the Eric Schmidt approach, just attack you with me. He's actually attacked well, me a couple times, too. And you know, <laughs> he did actually respond back. He was talking about that one song uh, that got so popular that Magna, MAGA identified with, and the guy's like, hey, I didn't write that about, oh, I wrote yeah. that about you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like, if you really want to listen to music about, you know, the struggle of people, put on some Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah. How about some yeah. Waylon Jennings? You know, Bob Dylan, even. Yeah. You know, well, and he pops off, well, you'd be surprised what I listen to. Mm-hmm. That is my mm-hmm. top concern, sir, what you listen to. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to mention one thing too. I want to go back before I have to before I have to like close up shop here and get the heck out of here. Um, you brought up constitutional sheriffs, and it triggered a, a memory in my mind. Um, I'm sure you know who Heather Cox Richardson is. Yes, uh, quite the historian, and uh, she would get together. Oh, I forgot the her cohort in um, her partner in crime. Let me see if I can find her right here on my phone right here. Um, yeah, where is it now? Here it is. Heather Cox Richardson uh, with her. Anyways, she had a partner in crime who's, another, oh, uh, Joanne Freeman, I think. And they both did a podcast called Now and Then. And I they discontinued it. They they stopped it a few weeks back. And I wish they would start it up again because, um, you know, I, I subscribe to Heather Cox Richardson online and I don't have time to read all of her stuff every day, but she is extremely good as a historian and putting things in, in plain language and, and, and contemporary language. But she, um, she had that podcast now and then, and one of the, one of the, uh, one of the episodes was dedicated to what they call the constitutional sheriffs, which I never heard about before. And you just mentioned it right now. And it just, I about fell off my chair listening to this thing because it was, uh, it was amazing how, you know, these sheriffs, um, believe that they are that they are judge jury and executioner uh you know they, they believe they they have all three branches of government under under their thumb and um i don't know i don't know if it's what you meant with constitutional sheriffs but i know they, they mentioned that before and it's like oh my god these guys are uh, these guys they feel they're empowered to do anything that they are the law yeah, that's exactly what that particular bill in no leg was Thankfully, it failed, but I have no doubt that they'll try it again just because yeah. it, it, it's Missouri GOP. But, yeah, yeah. It, constitutional sheriffs actually um, got it. It was created by a libertarian group, I think, 
and it's heavily weighted on white supremacy. Yeah. And it, it kind of looks like the Nazi brown shirts, mm-hmm. the way it would operate. Mm-hmm. And it's it's absolutely terrifying. No one elective official needs that much power. Yeah. You know, there's nothing constitutional about that idea. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. So that's something to definitely keep an eye on, aside from them trying to pass school vouchers and defund our schools. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but we could have another that, podcast That's a about big that. one yeah. to definitely keep an eye on. Okay. Good. Okay, let's wrap this up. Uh, we've been talking with Jojo Stewart, who is a activist, a mom, social media manager for the Democratic candidate for Missouri 8th District. Jojo, thanks for joining us today. Really enjoy our conversations. Well, I always enjoy talking to you, Dan. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Be sure to tune in next week, where we'll be talking with Franklin Delano Roth, who is also running for the U.S. Congress, representing the 8th District in Missouri. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on the Substack page at democracyonthemove.substack.com. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you'll tune in again next time.